Welcome to the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. In each episode, we feature a different lecture given by a writer, scholar, or public intellectual. Each of these talks explores the intersection between theology and culture, and how theology can help better guide us toward the common good of society. These talks are given live at our monthly Theology on Tap events at the Camp House in Chattanooga, Tennessee. For more information and to find out when our next live event is, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Theology on Tap Chattanooga. Now, here is this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. Tonight, I would like to bring up Donovan Brown to introduce our speaker. Donovan is part of the Office of Truth, Lament, and Repair here at the Mission Chattanooga. It's part of the church that runs the camp house. The work of the Office of Truth, Lament, and Repair is healing from the legacy of American racism. Toward this end, OTLR moves in three ways. To recover the historical record and promote a truthful framing of American history. To create spaces and processes for grieving and healing from trauma and propose pathways toward active repair in the church and community. So I can't think of anybody better to introduce tonight's speaker than Donovan Brown. Good evening and welcome and thank you, Matt, for those warm words. It is vitally important that we understand from whence we've come. It's difficult to bring healing if we don't quite understand the nature of what ails us. One of the reasons why I'm grateful for the work of Jamar Tisby is that he is about discovering and revealing what our country has been through. Beyond that, he is the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective, where he writes about race, religion, and culture. He is also the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast that amplifies dynamic voices for a diverse church. His writing has been featured in the Washington Post, CNN, Vox, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. He has spoken nationwide at conferences on racial reconciliation, U.S. history, and the church. Jamar is a Ph.D. candidate in history at the University of Mississippi, studying race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. In January 2019, he will release his first book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Thank you for being here. The next voice you will hear is that of Jamar Tisby. Wanted to start us off uh, just listening to a song entitled Could Have Been Me by Trip Lee. We'll listen to about a minute of it. I'll start it a little bit further than the beginning, just so we have more time together. But as you uh, hear it, just reflect on the words, if you would. August 9th, 2014, 18-year-old Mike Brown was walking down the street with his friend when a police SUV pulls near them and the officer driving shouts for them to get on the sidewalk. 
In the three minutes between 12.01 and 12.04 p.m., Mike Brown lay dead in the street. Six bullets entered his body, and the entire nation would learn about a small community near St. Louis called Ferguson, Missouri. Initial reports portrayed Mike Brown as an innocent victim. His companion said Brown had his hands up in a gesture of surrender, which is where the chant, hands up, don't shoot, comes from. Well, later, a Department of Justice report revealed that, in fact, there had been a struggle in the officer's SUV. It appears Brown had attempted to reach for the officer's gun. He'd been shot in the hand. The report further indicated that all the bullets had entered Mike Brown from the front, and the shot that killed him had entered the top of his head, indicating at the very least that Brown was facing the officer and at some point had his head pointing forward, either charging the officer or falling down, falling forward. So the story quickly became a source of national pain for a few reasons. Number one, Mike Brown was black. The officer who shot and killed him, Darren Wilson, was white. Number two, people asked, how did an unarmed black teenager end up dead in what should have been a routine encounter with law enforcement? Three, what actually happened in those short, short moments that led to Brown's death because only the officer was still alive to tell his version of events. Another question, what would be the consequences for the officer now that he had killed Mike Brown, if any? And then, of course, when black people and their allies protested in Ferguson, why did the police react with such a military-like show of force? Those questions about Ferguson, law enforcement, and justice are a major reason why I'm a student of history today. I saw a lot of responses from Christians that revealed a wide racial divide, a chasm, really. And while Mike Brown certainly had his issues, the level of insensitivity of God's people shocked me. One Christian commentator, happened to be a black man, said this in a blog post. Moments before his death, Mike Brown had violently robbed a man in a store, a man doing the best he could to make a living. Minutes later, Mike Brown reaped what he sowed and was gunned down in the street. That's the truth. Now, where some people saw Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and Rakia Boyd and many others as, quote, a thug, I thought of myself and my black and brown friends. Hanging out at the arcade and the movie theater and how it's possible that any one of us could have been smeared as thugs in national news media. I thought of all the other black people who were killed under far less ambiguous circumstances like Jordan Edwards and recently Botham Shem Jean. Jean was literally a choir boy. He led worship at his church before a white off-duty police officer shot and killed him in his own apartment. Most of all, I thought about my own son. My precious little boy who in a few years research shows will often be mistaken for someone several years older than he actually is. Someone threatening a thug. So I had all this frustration and all this anger, both at the injustice of these police-related killings and at the seeming callousness from many, not all, many people who I considered brothers and sisters in Christ. As I was trying to figure out how to express all these feelings roiling inside me, something unexpected happened. I read all these articles and blog posts, and it turned out that the people who had the most helpful things to say were historians. So I'll return to Ferguson and my journey into the academic study of history in a moment. Let's fast forward to the present, just a couple of weeks ago. The other day I was at the University of Mississippi where I'm a PhD candidate in history, uh, and I I was at the library, which is my second home. And undergraduate students often staff the 
checkout counter at the library, the circulation desk. And I don't think many undergraduate students realize the amount of reading and the amount of books that graduate students have to get because I often come literally with one of those like roller crates full of books, check out 25, 30 at a time, and their eyes kind of bug out. Well, this time I only had a handful, maybe five or six books. And so I make conversation with the student there, happens to be a, a, a young black woman, and I ask her, so, so what's your major? She says, business. I said, oh, great, great, because secretly I want everybody to be a history major. <laughs> so I cross my fingers and I hope. And I said, well, what's your minor? She says, psychology. I'm like, okay, good, all right, that's cool. Um, are you interested in history? And she gets this face like she just smelled something really bad <laughs> and shakes her head. And I, I, I'm, I just, I, I'm polite, okay, well. It's really interesting, you should check it out, kind of thing. And uh, you know, she doesn't listen, but inside I was screaming. <laughs> I wanted to lean over the desk and just ask her, don't you even know? You're living in the present, but you're a product of the past. Don't you remember William Faulkner, who's from Mississippi? He said the past is not dead. It's not even past. Don't you know that people who are most effectively working for justice and positive change today have some sense of the past? Well, I didn't say that to her. <laughs> but you're a captive audience, so I can say it to you. And, and that's it. You know, my, my, my thesis is simple. Studying history is a form of activism, and studying history leads to activism. Studying history is a point of activism, and uh, a form of activism, and studying history leads to activism. I only have two points, so if you have any preacher friends, don't tell them I broke the cardinal rule. Every message has to have three points, just two tonight. So the first one is, is how history is a form of activism. And by activism, I mean exposing, explaining, and repairing injustice. Exposing, explaining, and repairing injustice. And I'll point out how some historians have used their knowledge of the past to work for change in their time. And, and secondly, I'll, I'll talk about how history leads to activism. A little bit of my own journey into the study of history. And you may not be a student of history right now, or you may not be an activist, but I want to talk to you about my own journey and, and how the more I studied the past, the more concerned I came, became about making a difference in the present. Now, we'll pause one or two times. We'll listen to, to more of uh, Trip Lee's song. And uh, at the end of this, which I'm going to try to keep uh, brief enough so that we have time for Q&A, so in those pauses, feel free to write down or text your questions. Be thinking about it so we kind of avoid that awkward pause at the very end. Who has questions? Who's going to be first? You, you already know this. So, history as activism. For as long as people have done history, justice-minded people have used history to advocate for change. When I thought about history as activism, actually the first thing that came to mind were slave narratives. I argue that the genre of writing called slave narrative actually represents a way of using history as activism. Why? A few enslaved men, men and women were able to write and publish their memoirs and autobiographies, and doing so was an act of defiance. <laughs> when enslaved people wrote their stories, they asserted and insisted upon their dignity in a society that considered enslaved Africans not people, but property. Slave narratives stripped away the illusions that slavery was actually good for black people. You know, that's the excuse they made all the time, that, that, that slavery civilized black people, that they were provided food and clothing and shelter, and, and, and get this, they even heard the gospel. And had they not been slaves, they would have died heathens and pagans in Africa. That was the narrative. But the description the enslaved people gave of their captivity revealed slavery in all its brutality and inhumanity. So does anyone know who this is? No? No? Olada Equiano. That's right. So Olauda Equiano. He published an autobiography called The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olauda. 
Ola Uda Equiano or Gustavus Vasa in 1789 to record his life as a slave and eventually as a free man. Now he was born around 1745 as part of the Igbo tribe in modern day Nigeria. Slave traders kidnapped him and his sister when he was about 11 years old. Years later, Equiano wrote about the traumatic experience of being packed into a slave ship as a piece of cargo, what we now know as the Middle Passage. Now there's a part in his autobiography where he talks about the heat and the stench of being below the hold. And so I want to read you an excerpt. The stench of the hold while we were on the coast was so intolerably loathsome that it was dangerous to remain there for any time. And some of us had been permitted to stay on the deck for the fresh air, but now that the whole ship's cargo was confined together, it became absolutely pestilential. The closeness of the place and the heat of the climate added to the number in the ship, which was so crowded that each had scarcely room to turn himself, almost suffocated us. This produced copious perspirations from a variety of loathsome smells and brought on sickness among the slaves of which many died, thus falling victims to the improvident avarice, as I may call it, of their purchasers. Can I give you a bonus? Just because I like you. As an aside, a lot of people call racism America's original sin. I think racism is America's original symptom. I think the original sin is greed, what Equiano calls improvident avarice, the profit motive. Wanting to get as much money for as little investment as possible is what drove race-based chattel slavery in the United States. Not that it invented racism. People needed no excuse to hate one another, but it helped create this system of slavery. Going on, Equiano describes the tubs where they kept the human excrement as they were making this months-long journey across the ocean. And he says, quote, the wretched situation was again aggravated by the galling of the change, now become insupportable, and the file of the necessary tubs into which the children often fell and were almost suffocated. The shrieks of the men and the groans of the dying rendered the whole scene of horror almost inconceivable. Equiano's narrative of his life as a slave shook the men and women who read it. It dispelled myths surrounding slavery and made this awful institution more real to thousands of Americas who had never learned or had never bothered to learn about the life of enslaved black people. Now, I'll give you another example. This one, just as tragic in its own way, and it speaks to the gendered na nature of slavery and racism because it played itself out differently for men and women. That's a diagram of the slave ships. When I say avarice or greed, they came up with ways to, to pack them in as tightly as possible so that you could get as many across the ocean as possible, counting that a good percentage would die on the journey. So they sort of overstocked, overstuffed the ships. And uh, again, the profit motive so that they could sell as many as possible once they reached uh, the other side of the Atlantic. Anyone know who this is? Harriet Jacobs. Another example of a slave narrative that revealed the raw institution of slavery came from a black woman named Harriet Jacobs. Rape was an almost inevitable feature of slave life for black women. They had no social or legal power to resist the lascivious behavior of their white slave owners. And the master's wives instead of exhibiting solidarity with slave women, often treated them with contempt and jealousy, knowing that their husbands were sleeping with the enslaved women. Deprived of any desirable recourse, black women had to exercise such agency as they could 
under the harsh circumstances. So Harriet Jacobs wrote an autobiography called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And she relates her moral agony at having to choose between rape by her slave master or a more willing but no less unequal sexual relationship with a free white man. Jacobs was raised by a Christian grandmother. And her grandmother was concerned for Jacob's safety and her sexual virtue. And the young slave girl, Harriet, agonized over her decision about sexual partners. She didn't want to disappoint her grandmother. And for years, she had been avoiding the lecherous tentacles of her slave owner, Dr. Flint. To her white female readers, she implored, quote, But, oh, ye happy women, whose purity has been sheltered from childhood, who have been free to choose the objects of your affection, whose homes are protected by law, do not judge the poor, desolate slave girl too severely. So she's writing to the free white women who might read her autobiography, and she's afraid that they're going to judge her as loose or as immoral. And she's saying, look, all your life you've had your choice, more than I have anyway. And at the very least, you have recourse under law to do something if someone violates you. I don't have those choices, so I have to make do with the choices I've got. In the end, Jacobs chose to partner with the free white man in hopes that if they had children together, he would free them. Such agonizing choices characterized black life under slavery. Narratives like the one Jacobs wrote exposed the gendered abuse that enslaved black women endured. After reading Jacobs' narrative, no one could reasonably insist that slavery was good for the enslaved. And so slave narratives are a form of using history as activism. But there's other ways that people have used history to correct false ideas and to pursue justice. One of the things that makes the field of academic history so dynamic is that historians correct other historians. And there's no clearer case of this correcting than when it comes to the Civil War, slavery, and Reconstruction. After emancipation, racism did not go away. It just adapted. The racist system of segregation and the brutal tactics used to enforce it became known as Jim Crow. And for years, historians actually helped support an ideology of white supremacy that supported Jim Crow, and they did it through their academic history. There's something called the Dunning School of Interpretation, named after historian Archibald Dunning. And he said that Reconstruction, which was this period of vigorous political and economic activity, it was supported by the federal government through the Freedmen's Bureau. This school, the Dunning School, said that Reconstruction was actually a mistake. It said that freed black men and women were not ready for the responsibility of citizenship and that Reconstruction had disrupted the orderliness of the South. Of course, this was not the case. Reconstruction represented an imperfect but a promising attempt to grant full citizenship to the right, full citizenship rights to black people. And for the first time in U.S. history, we know this now, but only because of historians who sought to correct the record. This is a photograph of D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, not the one that recently came out starring Nate Parker. The original version was a film, a three-hour silent film. It was really the first blockbuster film. It grossed millions of dollars back in 1915 when it was released. It was so popular that Woodrow Wilson showed it in the White House. Now, if you know anything about the story of Birth of a Nation, you can see this right here. Uh, horse covered in a white sheet, man riding the horse wearing a white sheet. If you look closely, there's a burning cross in his hand, as well as crosses on the insignia. And so you can see sort of the Christian crossover for the Klan. And what the birth of a nation was telling the story of was during Reconstruction, they said blacks who were not ready for citizenship had taken over. And there's this one scene in the state legislature 
so racist that shows black people and white people in black faces barefoot in the state legislature, feet on the desk, eating fried chicken, yelling out, passing ridiculous laws. It shows the, the white people in the state legislature just sort of cowering in silence because they're powerless there. They're basically setting it up that, see, black people have ruined the government. And what Birth of a Nation shows is the birth of the Ku Klux Klan, which they depict as this heroic force that takes back the South, politics, government, economics, from these black people or these northern carpetbaggers. And so the Ku Klux Klan is portrayed as heroic. Never mind the lynching, never mind the terror. So that's the narrative. This is a narrative that historians are reinforcing until other historians started to change this interpretation. And they wrote to set the record straight on Reconstruction and to insist that black people actually had done remarkably well given the short time period and the lack of resources that they had. So they achieved financial independence, they started schools, they participated in electoral politics. And so W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a book called Black Reconstruction. And he did it to correct this faulty narrative of history. And I love his introduction because Du Bois, as a black man in America, he wrote this, he published it in 1935, still in the Jim Crow era. He knows the opposition he's going to get by writing a more accurate history of black reconstruction that shows black people as actual human beings and not people just above the level of brutes who need to be controlled through slavery. And so he knows that certain readers are not going to receive his book well. So he writes this. It would only be fair to the reader to say frankly in advance that the attitude of any person toward this story will be distinctly influenced by his theories of the Negro race if he believes that the Negro in America and in general is an average ordinary human being then he will read this story and judge it by the facts adduced. In other words, if you read the book thinking that black people are just regular, normal human beings and not beasts, then it'll be helpful to you. But he goes on. If, however, the reader regards the Negro as a distinctly inferior creation, who can never successfully take part in modern civilization and whose emancipation and enfranchisement were gestures against nature, then he will need something more than the sort of facts I have set down. In fine... I am going to tell this story as though Negroes were ordinary human beings, realizing that this attitude will, from the first, seriously curtail my audience. Do y'all, like, that's savage. That is a savage introduction to a very academic history of Reconstruction. He basically says, if you're racist, I can't do nothing for you. But if not, then enjoy and learn. He knew, Du Bois knew, that some people were so committed to white supremacy that even his thoroughly researched book wouldn't convince them. Du Bois, a sociologist by training, still published his historical account of Reconstruction, and only decades later would the Academy catch up and realize the importance of his work and follow Du Bois' pattern. So, let's move up to the present. A significant part, and for many maybe even the most important part of what history as activism means is historians using their craft to add context and explanation to current events. We live in an age not only of a constant news cycle, but an era of, quote, fake news as well. What that means is not only is there a constant stream of information, but many times that information is misleading or just downright wrong. Historians do the vital job of bringing their academic skills, that means their work in the archives, their labor in developing a thesis, their long hours of writing, and, and then opening up their writing to other historians to critique. They bring those skills and that knowledge to bear on important issues of the day. I don't know if many of you have heard of Dinesh D'Souza. I've heard his name. I didn't know much about him. But he recently cropped up again. Uh, he has a movie out right now that he calls a documentary. And its title is Death of a Nation. The cap caption to the film says, Can We Save America a Second Time? 
What he's referring to, if you see this image here, it's a blend of Abraham Lincoln's face and Donald Trump's face. And he's basically equating Donald Trump to Abraham Lincoln in terms of saving the country. So he has this very interesting view of history. Um, He's not a historian. And on Twitter, one day, he was trying to argue that Republicans of the present day were the pro-civil rights party and that Democrats were the segregationists in the 1950s and 60s during the civil rights movement and afterwards. Um, So he's basically trying to say, so he's a conservative, he's a Republican. I'm not making a partisan argument here. I'm just saying that D'Souza was trying to make the case that the real racists were the Democrats. And he was trying to use history to bolster his case and saying that Republicans were the ones who, like Lincoln, were advocating for abolition and all these things. So, um, but he didn't see that there's thing called, this thing called the party realignment, where Southern Democrats, who were traditionally the party of Jim Crow and segregation, switched platforms over the course of a very few years, and many for the former Southern Democrats, also called Dixiecrats, became Republicans. And so Kevin Cruz is a historian at Princeton with some vicious Twitter fingers. And he let loose on D'Souza with all the historical receipts. And I love the way he starts. He says, sure, let's do this. Right? Like, like, like as the gloves are off, D'Souza is about to catch these historical hands. And he goes on this long tweet storm, complete with documentary evidence to show how the civil, how, how the party switched platforms and how D'Souza was making an erroneous point. And it's wonderful to see this play out on social media because even if D'Souza and his supporters aren't convinced, a lot of other people who are observing get a lot of historical knowledge. So uh, Cruz is one of the best, but there are all kinds of historians who are doing this same thing. They've done this on various topics from feminism to the story of Emmett Till to the origins of the Electoral College. Social media savvy historians in the 21st century are using their knowledge to fix faulty interpretations of the past. Now, I go to school at the University of Mississippi. At the beginning of this month, on October 1st, it marked the anniversary of the day when James Meredith enrolled as the first black student in the university's more than 100-year history at that point. White rioters burned cars, they vandalized the campus in protest, and in the end, two white men lay dead at the hands of rioters. If you look closely, you can see the Confederate iconography, which they used in their rioting. The University of Mississippi was founded as this bastion of white supremacy and segregation, and you can see the signs all over campus. Until the 2000s, students waved Confederate flags at the football games. The mascot, until the 2010s, was... Colonel Reb, short for rebel, as in rebels who split from the Union and formed the Confederacy. And of course, there's a monument to the Confederate dead at the entrance of campus. Recently, one of the school's former officials and a major donor to the university posted a racist, sexist picture online that sparked a massive debate and outrage. That's the Confederate monument that stands at campus. This is a plaque that was just last year, I think, installed for contextualizing as a way to say why this statue was first erected and where we are now. What happened is this guy, Ed Meek, whose name is literally on the Meek School of Journalism and New Media, After a football game, um, students go to what's called the Square in Oxford, not in the UK, Oxford, Mississippi. Downtown is called the Square, and after football games, students hang out there. And Meek was very disturbed by what he saw. And he basically was citing the decline of the town. He said, uh, you know, there was a 3% decline in student enrollment, He threatened that property values were going to go down, and he said, quote, enough. Oxford and Ole Miss leaders, get on top of this before it's too late. And to illustrate the this 
he was talking about, he posted a picture of two black female students at the University of Mississippi. They're dressed for a night on the town. But for him, this was the quintessential example of Oxford and the University of Mississippi's decline. Well, it just so happened that one of those students is in a class that I'm the teaching assistant for. And she couldn't come to class for the next several sessions. As you can imagine, uh, this disturbed her emotionally, mentally, gained national attention, in fact. But faculty members from the Department of History, my department, wrote a petition calling for uni university officials to rename the schools, the school after Ida B. Wells Barnett. Ida B. Wells was born in 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi, just 30 miles north of Oxford. She's known as an investigative journalist. She uh, is known best as an anti-lynching activist and wrote a book called The Red Record, which uh, detailed, which many white newspapers and publications would never do, but detailed the events surrounding lynchings of black people. And so I was able to write uh, an op-ed in the New York Times supporting this call to rename the school the Ida B. Wells Barnett School of Journalism and New Media. What an appropriate way to respond to the racism and sexism that that Facebook post demonstrated than to name this school after a black woman journalist. These are some of the ways, so I go into some of the history of Ida B. Wells Barnett, and these are some of the ways that history is used as activism today. And one of the reasons I think it's so exciting and in fact, tomorrow, the college board, so, so they fast-track the process within the university, and, and it goes to the state board, which is over all the public uh, institutions of higher ed in the state, and they're meeting tomorrow to discuss uh, whether they will accept the recommendation to change the name. Now, I'm not sure if they, they decide what the name's going to be, but it's up to them to, to say, yes, it can be changed, or no, it can't. And historians are piling onto this to say, yes, we need a change. I could go on. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is an investigative journalist. She talks about segregation in schools and how we are not going to see an increase in the performance of minority students until they're in integrated schools because in general, and I'm just going to speak bluntly, until white people are in the schools, they don't improve because folks don't care enough. There are people who care. But the people who have money and power don't care enough to switch to change public education for black and brown students. So she argues that uh, one of the best examples of history is activism. Bringing context to current events is Ta-Nehisi Coates' epic essay on, uh, on reparations. And he talks about the history of residential segregation and redlining, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, Nicole Hemmer and Brian Rosenwald, they're putting in work of historians in a readable format in a national newspaper. They've got uh, a column in the Washington Post called Made by History. It's doing this all day, every day. The African American Intellectual Historical Society started a blog called Black Perspectives that's bringing history in a readable format to the general populace. It's going on and on and on and on and on. And so we've talked about Equiano. We've talked about Jacobs. We've talked about correcting history with Du Bois. We've talked about historians and current events like Kevin Cruz and Ida B. Wells Barnett and journalists using history to provoke change. And my point is this. If any of you wonder what the relevance history has to the present or what you can do with a knowledge of history, then one answer is activism. History is a form of activism. Historians reveal and correct knowledge about the past in order to bring clarity to the present. Now I want to pause here. A good time to think of questions or, or tweet questions. And I want to go as we transition to the second part, how history leads to activism, I want to go back to that song, Could Have Been Me, and play for you just a little bit more. So listen and reflect. I'm a mind, body, spirit person. I know we're not just heads on bodies, right? Uh, and I have a hard time sitting still. So if you need to stand, that's fine. If you need to move around a little bit, we, we about halfway there, okay? Stay with me, but do what you got to do. You human. Now I want to transition into talking about how history leads to activism. So that song could have been me. I, I tear up almost every time I hear it. Because Trip Lee, who's a hip-hop artist, a rapper, was able to encapsulate in this very 
simple phrase could have been me, how I and so many other black people felt every time we saw one of these cell phone videos with another person being brutalized or killed by the folks charged to protect and serve. I took it personally. It could have been me or my brother or my friends or my son. And, and I wanted to do something, but I realized that I couldn't do much because I didn't know much. I had to educate myself about all those things I talked about earlier, like, like redlining. I had to learn the history of politics and see how lawmakers enacted policies that affected me and helped people who, and the people who looked like me in very negative ways. I had to learn about the history of white evangelicalism and how much black lives did not seem to matter to many. And so what people often forget about Ferguson is that there were two reports. A lot of people point to the autopsy report that shows Brown probably didn't have his hands up. What they talk less about is the other Department of Justice report, which was on the Ferguson Police Department. The second report studied the PD and showed a pattern of predatory policing by a majority white police force in a majority black neighborhood. And historians helped unpack exactly how a Ferguson and its racially charged context came to be. All right? It was no coincidence that Mike Brown, a black teenager, encountered Darren Wilson, a white officer, in that community. There were intentional historic reasons for that, reasons that affect us today. And if you don't know the history, you won't know how to combat or, 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 or talk about it. The first question is, why do we have neighborhoods that are so racially segregated in the first place? Is it simply a matter of preference? You know, people, people like being around people who are like themselves, people who are familiar to them. And since most of the people we know are within our own race, it, it, it just so happens that neighborhoods become mostly white or mostly black. It's, it's nobody's plan. It's just, just the way things are. That's what a lot of people believe. But is it something else? Historians showed how officials at the local and national level made intentional choices that excluded black people from white neighborhoods. In the midst of the Great Depression, in 1933, the government created the Home Owners Loan Corporation, or HOLC. The HOLC purchased homes of people who couldn't pay their mortgages anymore, and then they issued new loans under different and more affordable terms. Now, giving a loan always entails risk. And the risk with the HOLC is that the homes they purchased would lose values, value or that the residents couldn't pay. So officials from the HOLC, they investigated the surrounding neighborhood and other potential properties to determine if they were likely to retain their value, increase or go down. The racial demographics of a neighborhood were often a key in assessing property values. And so the HOLC created color-coded maps of every metropolitan area in the nation with the safest neighborhoods colored green and the riskiest colored red. It's a practice we know as redlining. I recommend to you The Color of Law it's a book by Richard Rothstein, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, and that last quote about the riskiest neighborhoods being colored red comes from there. So neighborhoods with any black people, even if the residents had stable middle-class incomes, in other words, they could afford to be there, they were coded red, and lenders were unlikely to give loans in these areas. And this practice became known as redlining, and the HOLC policy was a form of government-sponsored racism. What about the police? Why has there been such a contentious relationship between many black communities and law enforcement? After all, these are the people who help us, right? They protect us from a criminal element. And many of us 
when we think of the police, we have that connotation. However, many black and brown people, racial and ethnic minorities have a very different connotation when it comes to the police, but why is that? I'll recommend to you another article. This one is called One Continuous Graveyard, Emancipation and the Birth of the Professional Police Force by a historian named Carrie Lee Merritt. In that article, she talks about the origins of the former police force. And it's fascinating, I didn't know this. But prior to the Civil War, prior to emancipation, many towns did not have an organized police force. There was no line item in the budget in city governments for a police force. What would happen is if there was a need, they formed an impromptu posse, a militia, a bunch of folks from the community grabbed their guns and they went to take care of the problem. And prior to emancipation, most policing was done toward poor white people. Why? Because all the black people were slaves. They were already controlled by the plantation owner and, and, and all the systems of, of torture and brutality that kept enslaved people in place. So there was no need for a police force to police black people. They were already being policed on the plantation. But after the Civil War, things change. After the Civil War and emancipation, now you got all these free black people. They used to be enslaved under the control of the plantation master. But now they're just free. What are you going to do about it? Not only are they free, but you've lost your labor force. You used to pay nothing but room and board, basically, and the bare minimum at that, for your labor. So again, greed, avarice. Most organizations, their biggest expenditure is on employee salary and benefits, right? Well, what's the way to reduce that? Don't pay them. That's what slavery was. Now you have all of these plantation owners saying, hey, how are we going to continue to make a buck when we got to pay these folks? Or they don't want to work for us anymore. They want to go north or, or start their own farms. What are we going to do? It goes all the way back to the 13th Amendment. And there's a great documentary directed by Ava DuVernay called 13th. This amendment abolished slavery. And what many people don't know is that Emancipation of Proclamation didn't actually abolish slavery in all the U.S. areas. It limited its scope. It wasn't until the 13th Amendment passed in 1865 that all enslaved persons gained their freedom. But the amendment reads, that's the article, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. In other words, no slavery. Unless you were convicted of a crime. Then you could be put to involuntary servitude. By the way, did anyone see this tweet by Kanye West? Or Ye, as he loved to, likes to be called now? All right, so not too long ago he said, he's referring to his wearing this hat, and he said, this represents good and America becoming whole again. We will no longer outsource to other countries. We will build factories here in America and create jobs. We will provide jobs for all who are free from prisons as we abolish the 13th Amendment. Message sent with love. And he says abolish the 13th Amendment, which a lot of people jumped on him because it's like the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. So you want to take the 13th Amendment away and bring slavery back? So he later clarified, he didn't mean abolish it. He wanted to amend the part that said, except as convicted of a crime. But I loved uh, Chris Evans' response. He says, there's nothing more maddening than debating someone who doesn't know history. <laughs> and I was like, go Cap! Because he plays Captain America, Marvel, yeah. So... Even Captain America demonstrated the relevance of history right now, right? <laughs> um, but there was something called the Black Codes that were passed 
particularly by legislators in the South. And it was a mainly a way of controlling black labor. As I said before, these plantations had lost their, lost their labor force, so they're trying to figure out how can we get labor for cheap again. And so they promote the black, black codes. One of the black codes was a vagrancy code. And it made it easy for police to arrest black people for minor infractions. If you didn't have what the authorities considered, quote, proof of employment, which meant a letter from a white person, or if you were homeless, as many recently freed slaves who had no money were often homeless, then they could arrest you. And once they had you in the system, they could put you to work. Remember that involuntary servitude part? So when these men and some women got sent to prisons, outside companies and farmers contracted with the prisons to get inmates to work. This was the start of something called the convict lease system. Or as journalist, uh, one journalist called it, slavery by another name. Although the convict lease system as it existed in the early 20th century has fallen out of practice, imprisoned men and women are still exploited for their labor. And it's why prisoners recently went on strike. It's just in September. And they had a list of 10 demands which included, quote, immediate improvements to the conditions of prisons and an immediate end to prison slavery. This is 2018. So, let me sum it up for us. At a fundamental level, Studying history has taught me to view society from the bottom up. I like how Howard Thurman calls it. He says, the disinherited. I like how Jesus calls it, the least of these. When we study history from the bottom up, we start to get the perspective of the people who have been overlooked, the people who are powerless. Who are the disinherited? Who are the least of these in our society today? Women, black people, incarcerated people, the poor, Native Americans, the disabled, immigrants, children, and more. And among historians in the last few decades, there's been this turn to listening to the voices from the bottom in terms of race and gender and class. And that's how you get books like John Dittmer wrote a book called Local People that moves beyond the major figures of the civil rights movement like Martin Luther King, and it talks about the anonymous people the nameless people at the grassroots level who did most of the work and took a lot of the risk for black civil rights. This is how you get books like Barbara Ransby, Ransby's book on Ella Baker. She had a 50-year career in the civil rights movement with over 30 different organizations. She was the architect of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but as a black woman, she didn't get any credit. That's how you get books like Glenda Gilmore's Gender and Jim Crow, which looks at the way sexism interacts with racism and the conflict that occurred between white and black women during the Jim Crow era. Learning these stories of the marginalized and oppressed often leaves you with a burden. By studying history, you see the connection between oppression in the past and ongoing oppression in the present. You see that the racial wealth gap is not a result of black and brown people not being as good with money as white people. You see that black people are not more prone to break the law any more than other people group, but they've been over-policed in many cases. You see that the, the lack of racial and ethnic minorities represented, represented at colleges and universities isn't because they're inherently less intelligent, but because of underfunding and undereducation and racial discrimination in the schools. When you learn about history from the bottom up and you have the burden of knowing the ways that all the politicians and everyday people have heaped injustice on other people, people who bear the image of God just like you do, people who are worthy of dignity just like you are, then you have to do something. You have to act. I like historian John Hope Franklin's words. I cannot imagine how knowing one's history would not urge one to be an activist. It'll cause you to ask, what is my role in the ongoing struggle for liberation from economic, 
gender, and racial oppression. How can I specifically help? For me, I've learned my form of activism isn't necessarily marching on the front lines, but it's telling the truth, especially through writing. I try to use my writing to bring historical facts to life and challenge the current status quo. I try to show that the world we live in and the ways it's unfair to certain groups of people is the result of intentional decisions and not just the luck of the draw. And I try to show that if these negative circumstances came about as a result of intentional decisions, then we can make different decisions that will change the status quo. That's the genesis of my first book, The Color of Compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. Like Du Bois, I fully expect there will, some, there will be some people who reject the premise outright. It's okay. Book's going to be there when you're ready. <laughs> but for my graduate program, I read literally hundreds of books, and one thing that kept coming up was the fact that Christians and churches and denominations oftentimes construct and preserve a system of oppression based on race. I couldn't read the historical record and not share it. I had a burden, a burden to tell the truth. This is history with a purpose. And I say in the introduction to the book that my goal is reformation in the church. I talk about the history of the American church and racism in order to leave people with the same kind of burden I have, a burden for change, a burden to do something. And that's my hope for you today, that in listening to this talk and in studying history for yourselves, you would develop a burden for change and transformation, and that by studying the past, you would become an activist for change in the present. History is about telling the truth. I want you to study history so you can be truth-tellers. Throughout history, men and women who have told the truth have pushed their communities to be better, but telling the truth requires courage. People will oppose you, especially these days. If someone doesn't like what you're saying, no matter how carefully researched, no matter how many facts you have to back you up, they'll simply call it fake news. In Christian circles, if you study history, you'll face opposition too. I study race in the church. I've been called a Marxist, a social justice warrior, and even my salvation has been questioned. It has been hard at times, but I like to remember God's words to Joshua in the first chapter. Three times in the first nine verses, he says to Joshua, as he's about to take over leadership from Moses, who has died, three times he says to Joshua, be strong. And courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Why? Because <laughs> he was about to fulfill God's mission. And he would certainly face obstacles and resistance as he was leading the people of Israel into the promised land, which was already occupied. And it's the same with us. When we are called on God's mission, we're going to face opposition. We're going to need strength. We're going to need courage. And how are you going to get through it when God tells you to be strong and courageous? Because you can't sort of stir that up in yourself or by yourself. So God doesn't just tell Joshua, be strong and courageous as you are fulfilling the mission I've called you to do. God gives Joshua a promise along with that command. And it is a command. Be strong. Be courageous. Right. Yes. He says this. God says to Joshua as he's trembling before the hundreds of thousands of people he has to lead into war for fulfilling God's mission. God says this to Joshua. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In other words, God gives Joshua the strength and courage he needs to complete his mission through a promise, the promise of his presence. But now, in Christ, God's promise has become a person. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment 
of God's promise that he would always be with Joshua and he'll always be with us because Jesus Christ himself is Emmanuel, God with us. So through Jesus, we can have the strength and courage to tell the truth. History is activism because history is about telling the truth. And if you're going to tell the truth about racism and sexism and classism and the ways that image bearers have marginalized and oppressed other image bearers, then you're going to need some strength and you're going to need some courage. But you don't have to do it all on your own. You've got your, your, your instructors. You've got allies in your church community. You've got books, most of all. You've got Jesus, and that's all you really need. So I say, go study history. Go and be activists. Go and tell the truth. Thank you, and amen. Thanks for listening to the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. To connect with us and learn about our next live events, like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Theology on Tap Chattanooga. You can also support TOT in two ways. First, leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast from. And second, consider being a patron of Theology on Tap with a small monthly donation on patreon.com. And you can learn more about that at patreon.com backslash Theology on Tap.